3: Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to
0: Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick and today
0: we're getting the team back together or I guess we're not getting the team back together because they were never together before. So we're getting the team together in the first place because Rob, is this our first example of a uh, a turbo team or dream team style movie uh, of the, of the genre where you have a specialist of several different kinds and they
4: combine forces to go on a mission together? It might be. it's a it's one of these genres that I think is easy to take for granted because it's such a core aspect of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, from the Avengers to Guardians of the Galaxy. It's also a key part of our sort of role-playing Dungeons & Dragons sense of adventure. You have a diverse group that's brought together. Everybody has their own skill set. They come from different backgrounds, different species even. And, uh, you know, a lot of that's probably based on the sort of blueprint provided by the Fellowship of the Ring.
0: Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so you have a, a warrior king and a wizard and an elf archer and, uh, well, I don't know. I guess a lot of what the various uh, parties in the fellowship do is is basically fight in one way or another. But I, that's also true of some of these dream team, turbo team type movies. They're people who just fight with different, uh, I don't know, weapons or specialties. You'll have like an explosives expert mm. or somebody who yeah, has a sword.
4: Oh, yeah, a good heist movie, right? Or, or even more to the point, a terrible heist movie will we'll inevitably have this, uh, uh, this as part of the plot. You got to bring it, you got to have your safe cracking dude. You got to have your heavy weapons dude for some reason, and so forth. It's a proven formula. Why question it? So, what is the specific
0: movie we're looking at today? It is a 1986 film called Eliminators.
4: Yeah, we're going back to 1986 with this one, a banner year for genre films. Uh, and we're also going back to the filmographies of Peter Manoogian and producer Charles Band. I could be wrong, but I think Manoogian is the first director we've come back to for a second film on Weird House Cinema. Though certainly we've covered multiple films produced by such names as Charles Band, Roger Corman, etc. And of course, uh, we've come back to different films featuring some of the same actors. Oh yeah,
0: Arena Minukian did Arena the the space alien boxing movie. I don't know what yeah. you even call it. Yeah. Monster MMA, where it had like a human fighter getting into punching matches with giant squid and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, that was a fun one. And I'm going to, I'm going to go right ahead and say there is no contest whatsoever.
4: Arena was a better movie than Eliminators. <laughs> Though you can see the connective tissue. You can see some of the, some, some more themes, you know, they're both films feature cyborgs. Um, both films feature Star Trek actors, uh, so uh, they have a lot in common. Now, for those of you out there who are on the
0: edge of your seats wondering, I, I know, I know, I know, but will there be boats in this movie? <laughs> you can rest assured, uh, and and if you don't believe me, you can consult one of the nine stills from the film included on the back cover of the VHS box. Uh, there is photographic guarantee there will be gratuitous watercraft in this movie. That's right. Yeah, there, there are a lot of boats in this film. Oh, so many boats. About 15 minutes in, I started getting the feeling that this is going to be one of those movies where the title actually doesn't feature in the movie at all. And what do you know? My fears were, were well-founded. In fact, the team of eliminators in this movie are never called eliminators by anyone. They never refer to themselves as eliminators. None of what they're doing could really all that easily be described as eliminating. I guess they're sort of on a mission against a guy. Maybe they're trying to eliminate his evil doings. But overall, I would just say that the title of this movie is a more or less random word. And if you were to go by primary themes, a more appropriate title for this film would have been either Mandroid or Boats. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
4: <laughs> um, now, if, if you want a, an elevator pitch that, that sells you on the elimination aspect of this picture, uh, th- really, the, the back of the VHS box does it because this is what it says. In a hidden fortress concealed by impenetrable jungle dwells Dr. Abbott Reeves, a brilliant but devious scientist who has the power to create and the will to destroy. He must be eliminated. <laughs> there you go. And who is going to do this Eliminating? Well, it's obviously going to take a team of Eliminators. I guess so. Oh, and the the poster or the
0: front cover of the VHS tells you exactly who's doing the Eliminating because it says there's a period between all these words, Mandroid, Mercenary, (laughs) Scientist, Ninja, each one a specialist. Together they are Eliminators. Yes.
4: (laughs) I have a Um, a framed uh, copy of this poster, by the way. It is a beautiful poster, and I remember seeing the VHS box art, and I remember thinking it looked amazing. Like, this, this encapsulates everything I, I wanted to see uh, in the, uh, the 80s and 90s, you know? Uh, but somehow I didn't, which—and I, I have no idea how I avoided actually watching this movie, renting it at some point. Maybe, maybe there was something about it that seemed slightly too grown up for me as a child. Like, ooh, that looks cool, but I don't know. I, I dare not. Uh, though ultimately, it's a pretty, pretty harmless film for the most part.
0: Yeah, it is rated PG. Uh, Would you say that it has mature themes, but not adult themes or the other way around? Actually, I guess I'd say it has neither.
4: Uh, Well, I mean, there's a character who steals a smooch. uh, So there's that. Um, There are a lot of badly behaving characters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Has also there's a lot of boats. Uh, I don't know. uh, (laughs) Rated B for boat, I guess. But, yeah, but this poster is, is brilliant because mainly, yeah, there's some people in the background with some guns and some knives. There's a tiny floating robot that you can barely see, but mainly the mandroid center stage. It's this brilliant, just glistening, uh, you know, clearly half human, half machine. And then also he's like a tank uh, centaur, like his lower half appears to just be like tank treads. It's, it's beautiful, beautiful to behold.
0: I also like imagining the design conversation that went into the back cover of the VHS, because it's like, okay, which of these stills from the movie should we include over the synopsis? And, and the answer is all. Oh, what? <laughs> all, all nine. All nine
4: go on there. Grid of yeah. nine. Well, they, they did choose to, to go with the one they spent the most money on, I guess, in terms of effects and costuming. Now, if if we were to give a, I guess, a more specific uh, elevator pitch, I would say it goes as follows. A roboticist, a robot, a cyborg, a martial artist, and a low-life river rat must join forces to take on a time-traveling mad scientist intent on conquering ancient Rome with a suit of power armor and a death ray uh, with the help of a couple of tough guys in a boat. Oh,
0: yeah. Did we even mention that this involves time travel yet? Uh, no,
4: <laughs> and it is. Uh, oh boy, this is quite a time travel. If you want, if you want a time travel movie that makes Trancers Two feel like Primer, then the Eliminators <laughs> is here for you. <laughs> the time travel is almost kind of an afterthought in it.
0: Like usually with the time travel movie what your main characters are doing is time travel. But instead, the time travel is just sort of a, uh, an intro and an outro here. It's the beginning premise and then the, the very coda of the film. But the real travel that goes on in this movie, at least from the hero's point of view, is mostly, uh, is mostly by boat.
4: Mm-hmm. It's basically um, a higher speed um, heart of darkness <laughs> with time travel. Well, on that uh, note, let's go ahead and have, have the trailer. Let's just go ahead and listen to the entire trailer, because the, the audio is pretty tremendous in this.
1: In a hidden fortress concealed by impenetrable jungle, dwells Dr. Abbott Reeves, a brilliant but devious scientist with the power to create.
2: Help the mandroids from the cage, Takata. Any
1: malfunctions? I had some trouble with this. Feels like a delay in the neurosynapse trigger and the will to destroy. Move its memory, then dismantle it.
2: It's half-human.
1: He must be eliminated. Colonel Nora Hunter has the brains to mastermind the operation.
2: We need a full-time mechanic, my friend.
1: Fontana the River Rat. What
2: are you doing? I saw
1: this in a movie once. When he finds himself in a tight spot, someone else has to pick up the pieces. Kuchi, the ninja, he has the martial skills to destroy his enemies. The Mandroid. More machine than man. His special powers will determine whether
3: or not they survive. We got robots. We got cavemen. We got kung fu. What is this, anyway? Some kind of damn comic book.
1: It is the most perilous journey any one of them has undertaken. And once they reach their destination, they face the most awesome power on earth. You don't understand. Soon I shall rule the world. It will take all their combined skills to defeat him. Each one is the ultimate specialist in his field. Together, they are the Eliminators.
0: I haven't checked out this trailer yet, but I got to imagine it's pretty enticing because this is like many of the movies we talk about on the show. A, a, clearly, a marketing first kind of uh, a kind of creative project. I had the poster for this movie before I ever saw the movie. In fact, the the poster was a gift from a friend, but I understand why he gave it to me. It is a uh, it, it, it 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 encapsulates so much feeling. It's got the the feeling of these movies from that. There, it's not like a coherent genre, but it's like a vibe of '80s movies that includes other ones we've talked about, like Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin. This, this is this isn't that kind of bucket and has those kind of feelings coursing
4: through its arteries. Well, you know, it is produced by by Charles Band. It is an Empire International picture. And speaking of, I'm now remembering, yeah, th- of course, Charles Band was our first director that we came back to for second helping, uh, so, because uh, he did he did both Trancers too. And metal storm the destruction of Jared sin, so my oh. my apologies to uh, uh Sir Charles Band on that one uh, but uh uh yeah let's uh, this is a this is an empire international picture uh, it is a, a, a born out of uh, charles band's empire, as was the director Peter Mnougian. Um we talked about Peter Minogian previously uh on the arena episode uh, born nineteen forty nine he directed uh, a segment in their second feature, Empire International's second feature, the anthology film The Dungeon Master. That was his first directional credit, following uh, work as an assistant director on a string of band-directed films, as well as Galaxy of Terror. Uh, and he was a production manager on, on several other films, including Humanoids from the Deep and a lovely little 1982 thriller that they filmed on, on Tybee Island in Georgia, uh, The Slayer. Are you joking with Lovely? This one always looked gross. <laughs> um, It's mostly Love. Like, it's it's a better film than you, th- than you would think, the, the slayer. Oh, okay. um, the the monster that is prominently featured on some of the material barely shows up, like, shows up right at the end. It's, it's mostly an attempt to to do a uh, kind of, like, psychological horror picture. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. If you have any connection to Tybee Island, if you've ever been there, then maybe maybe that, that helps uh, grease the wheels a little bit. Manoogian uh, directed a string of In- Empire International pictures, uh, including uh, uh, the, um, Arena, which we already uh, have covered on the show, uh, the Elimin- or Eliminators, rather, not the Eliminators that we're talking about here. And then he would transfer into the full moon era of the Charles Band Empire as well with 1992 Seed People. Uh, so, uh, yeah, definitely definitely a Charles Band guy, this Manoogian. And the same can uh, can definitely be said for the writers on this film. Danny Bilson, born 1956, and Paul DeMio, who lived 1953 through 2018. Uh, these two got their start very much in the Charles Band camp with such pictures as 1984's Trancers. Um, also, uh, uh, they, they did uh, 89's Arena. And the, they later got into video game writing. And recently, um, they wrote the screenplay for 2020's Da 5 Bloods, directed by Spike Lee, which was released after Demio's death. Oh wow, that's a really uh, upward arc. Yeah, yeah. So interesting ascent there. Uh, you know, you may start out doing uh, monsters and uh, and cyborgs, but who knows? Who knows where your career will take you. So a familiar cast uh, of of uh, behind the scenes characters there. Let's get into the actors on this baby, because this is it's a pretty pretty fun uh, group that they put together. Well Rob, I know
0: this is not the order you had it in, but I feel like there's an we have an obligation to begin with our mandroid.
4: Yes. Um, and b- before before I even talk about who plays the Mandroid, I also have to point out something that kept bugging me a little bit while watching it is they call him a mandroid, but Android already means Mandroid. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Like that's it means, android, so like In the likeness man. Of, of man. Um, yeah. so it's kind of pointless to change it to Mandroid or if you were to change it even more and make it human droid, I don't know.
0: Well, I mean, I I think it's very confusing because so Android means in the form of a man. But I think then I think because Android was used in like science fiction to refer to robots that are in the form of a man, Mm -hmm. then it just got shortened to like droids in Star Wars. And then people just started thinking droid meant robot. But really, it Mm -hmm. means like it's a shortening of the word meaning form of a man. So then you have to add man back onto it in order to say, oh, but this this droid is like a man. It's part (laughs) man's. It's a beautiful
4: circular etymology. At any rate, our our man droid in this picture is played, well, I mean, he's he's mostly human. Uh, The human part is played by Patrick Reynolds, born 1948. And, you know, you'd be forgiven for not being all that up on the acting career of Patrick Reynolds. This is probably his most prominent role, though he pops up in mostly small roles and some uncredited roles on various films and TV shows prior to this, including uh, Robert Altman's Nashville, Hair, Airplane, Pumping Iron, and Xanadu. Wait, who is he in Pumping Iron? I think he's just himself uncredited. I I haven't seen Pumping Iron, but I, I, maybe he's standing in the background in a gym or something. Like that's the sort of caliber of roles he often had. I think earlier, uh, in, or you know, for much of his career, he's just kind of he's just kind of hanging out. I mean, is he is he pumping? Is he like in the 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 gym with Arnold Schwarzenegger, feeling the pump? I mean, maybe he's he he doesn't seem like super beefy in this film, but he seems pretty cut. Like he seems like like maybe he he frequented the gyms. Okay. So uh, the interesting thing here, though, about Patrick Reynolds is that he is the grandson of R.J. Reynolds, who lived 1850 through 1919, the founder of the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. Now, Patrick Reynolds was uh, himself a smoker for many years, but he quit in 1985, and he became a prominent anti-smoking activist around the same time and founded the Foundation for a Smoke-Free America. Uh, so, uh, really, ultimately, most notable as an anti-smoking activist, who was also once a mandroid. Yeah, when I Google him, he comes
0: up as an anti-smoking guy, and then it's got a little section of his Wikipedia page where it's like, he was also in
4: some movies where he played like a robot. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. And, you know, it's uh, uh, it's uh, it's been pretty influential. There's a movie that I, I did see when it came out in 2011 from Stephen uh, Kostansky. Uh, it's kind of a sci-fi, sort of a comedy, kind of like a dry comedy. It's called Manborg. Uh, and it has a character that's very, you know, very clearly inspired by Mandroid.
0: Well, throughout this movie, I kept mixing up the words Mandroid and Manborg, probably because of the existence of that movie, which I don't think I've ever seen. But yeah, I, I, he's, he's a Borg. He's a man. He's a droid. He's annoyed. He's, he's all of the above. All right. Who
4: do you want next, Joe? Pick, pick a member of our adventuring crew.
0: Well, I feel like after that, we got to pick our other main hero, which has got to be Denise Crosby, playing Colonel Nora Hunter, right?
4: Yes, Denise Crosby, born 1957, uh, best known to Trek fans as Tasha Yar on the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. I think she gets killed by a, like, sentient puddle of mud. Yeah, some sort of black ooze, right? Uh, so she, she ends up dying, but then she ends up coming back playing a character named uh, Sela, I think, or Sela. I don't remember this character, but this mm. is um, this would be Tasha Yar's half Romulan daughter, possibly from an alternate timeline. I'm not not certain on that.
0: Uh, she also plays the mother, though,
4: in the original movie version of Pet Cemetery. She does. Yes, I also have to. This is uh, an admission I have to make. Uh, I've, I've been working much of my life under the assumption that she was rock legend David Crosby's daughter, but she is not. She's not related to David Crosby at all. Her father was Dennis Crosby, son of crooner Bing Crosby. So, huh. uh, you know, so somehow I kind of switched that around. I'm like, okay, famous music family. Uh, let's, let's switch it over to David Crosby instead. And, like, to the point where I would look at her and I would be like, yeah, you can see the resemblance. You can see the David Crosby a little bit. Just imagine her doing a duet with the son of Stephen Stills. (laughs) Yeah. But, hey, already famous families are coming together to make Eliminators. I like it. Um, Now, uh, it's worth pointing out that uh, Denise Crosby here has been in a lot of TV, uh, including the likes of Mad Men, uh, Red Shoe Diaries, The X-Files. Do you remember her on X-Files? Huh. I did watch X-Files. I don't remember what she was on there. Well, she, she showed up. Uh, She was on Dexter. She was on The Magicians. And she's still active today. Um, In this, she plays a very serious and attractive cyborg scientist. Um, And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, I feel like it's also kind of a genre diluted version of Kathleen Turner's Joan Wilder character in Romancing the Stone. Uh, But, you know, she does a good job with what she's given here.
1: Well,
0: I like about her character that she has random expertise in like everything. So, <laughs> yeah. she is she's a colonel, but she's also a scientist and a roboticist who invents robots that go to other planets. But then at other points in the movie, we also find out that she's an expert in uh, boat repair. Of Roman history because she like can can re- sight read Latin yeah and oh oh and one la- and then uh well spoiler we're gonna have to talk about this later there there happen to be some Neanderthals who time travel in this movie and when she sees them she's just like they look like Neanderthals. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> how would anyone today know that? But this is scientist syndrome from one of these 80s action movies. You just have a scientist, and they're, they don't just have expertise in their subject area. Because they're a scientist, they're just general purpose smart person, and
4: they know everything. Well, it's very Dungeons and Dragons in that respect, right? It's just yeah. do an intelligence check, and then she she nails it. Natural 20. Love it.
0: Or maybe it's just indicative of, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever educational path she was on and gave more re- well-rounded uh, education. You know, you don't just get your subject area. You also get a little bit of everything. You get, you get the humanities. You, you can cite read Latin. You know what a Neanderthal <laughs> looks like for some reason.
4: <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com. All right. Who do you want next? You want our rogue or do you want our warrior class? Oh, God. Well, which is which? No, I know which is which, at least from a moral point
0: of view. We got to go rogue because uh, I think we're going in recruiting order, right? So we start with (laughs) Mandroid and then we go to scientist. That's Denise Crosby, uh, Colonel Nora Hunter. And then we go to rogue. But in this case, it's it's a special breed of rogue. It's a water
4: rogue. That's right. The character Harry Fontana, played by Andrew Prine, born 1936. Prine is a, an American actor who was, uh, seemed to have been active from uh, 1955 through 2015, so pretty long career there. A lot of work, uh, TV work in the 60s, a lot of Westerns, naturally. And in 1971, he starred in a, as the title character in Simon, King of the Witches, a movie about hippies and warlocks that was kind of um, deceptively promoted at the time as a satanic shocker in the wake of the Manson murders. Uh, yeah, I've never seen that one. Yeah, it's, it's said to be a, a far tamer film than the marketing would have had people believe, but it's still weird, still has a following. And I'm, I'm to believe it's one of the reasons that Rob Zombie cast him in The Lords of Salem in, tw- in 2012. You know, he oh, his, brought in a, lot of, yeah, a lot of- movie. a witch movie. Yeah, brought a lot of people in from witch movies and, uh, uh, and put together quite a cast. Now, the rest of Prine's filmography is kind of all over the place. He he pops up in 1993's Gettysburg and 1962's The Miracle Worker, you know, both mainstream, largely well-regarded films of their time. Uh, But he was also in Charles B. Pierce's 1976 slasher The Town That Dreaded Sundown, as -hmm. well as the 1973 Spanish horror film Hannah, Queen of the Vampires, a.k.a. Crypt of the Living Dead. Now, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, it, in case that went by
0: anybody out there, that was by the same writer and director as the Boggy Creek yeah. movies, one of yeah. which we've covered on the show before. I, I, I've seen it. I'm not a fan of The Town That Dreaded Sundown. I think it's kind of a bummer. Mm.
4: Well, he uh, he also appeared in Alan Rudolph's 1974 film Terror Circus, a.k.a. Nightmare Circus. Uh, I, I haven't seen that, but um, uh, Alan Rudolph can be a very interesting filmmaker, so maybe I should give it a shot. Hmm. Now, Prime continued to be in what can only be described as all sorts of TV. Uh, he pops <laughs> up in Six Feet Under, Weird Science, the TV series, Baywatch Nights, uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, The Next Generation, Matlock, Murder, She Wrote, Freddy's Nightmares, plus much, much more. In this film, he plays uh, low-life river rat Harry Fontana, a character who seems to me to be very much in the uh, in the post-romancing the stone trope of a cantankerous rogue much like michael douglas 's character Colton in that film, uh, which came out earlier in one thousand nine hundred and eighty four and uh, it seems like we see this in a number of films post Romancing the Stone. Romancing the Stone was supposed to be a bomb. It ended up being a huge hit. So, you know, everybody was going to get in on that a little bit and get some sort of a, a sweaty, uh, you know, kind of greasy um, a rogue character to pilot a boat and have a woman fall in love with him. I think you see it here. You also seem to see some version of it in Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death starring Bill Maher as the sort mm-hmm. of uh, roguey uh, boat
0: captain. Uh, it would seem to me that a lot of this has got to draw from the Indiana Jones tradition, but just n- not quite managing to nail the lovableness of Indiana Jones.
4: Right. Yeah. If you can't get the chemistry quite right for your Indiana Jones character, you end up with that, with the Michael Douglas character. And if you're, <laughs> and then if you're aiming for that, you can't quite, it's kind of like a game of telephone <laughs> where yeah. by the end of it, what do you have? You have, um, you have Andrew Prine playing this, um, uh, likable but not nearly as charismatic character but but still a lot of fun like this is a performance that has a lot of roguish energy and it's uh, i i i constantly enjoyed watching to see what prine was going to do with his face next like what kind of weird um uh sell he was going to give on things he also had kind of a for some reason i was thinking he had kind of a john carradine vibe to it something about his, hmm. his sort of lankiness
0: oh yeah okay
4: I was thinking a much less creepy James Woods. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's spot on as well. All right. That leads us to uh, the, the final member of this party, not counting the, the robot that flies around. We'll discuss that in a bit. Uh, but we have the character Kuji played by Conan Lee, who also served as fight choreographer on the picture. He was born in 1959. Chinese American action movie actor and stuntman. Um, I think he was born born in in China, but uh, 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 you know, grew up in New York, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. The same year as this picture, '86, he appeared as a Cheng Sing gang member in Big Trouble in Little China. Cheng Sing those those are the good guys, right? Uh, they're the guys who Victor Wong recruits. Yes. Uh, now Conan Lee also had roles in Jim Cotta. Uh, Ninja in the Dragon's Den, that one, uh, in that one he appeared alongside uh, Hiroyuki Sonata, uh, who went on to, of course, become a, a major not only Japanese film star, but international film star. He's also done some voice work and some directing and writing. Um, he also appears in the Fred Olin Ray movie from 1986, Armed Response, that starred David Carradine, Lee Van Cleef, Mako, Ross Hagen, Dick Miller, and Michael Berryman. So quite a cast there. Uh, that that's a that's a full on captain's platter, yes, you're getting the sampler all deep fried all right a couple of bit players of note that will this will become more important important in a bit, but we have the the actor Peter Schrum playing Ray, who is the primary henchman in this picture uh essentially uh, what would you what would you say uh, excuse me, he's the Darth Vader of this movie I'm not sure not the Darth Vader he would be primary henchman. um he's the
0: hmm. What would you say? He's sort of the the Clarence Boddicker of this movie. I mean, yeah. except he's like a, this <laughs> the, this large, beefy guy with the big red beard uh, who wears a vest, and he he's kind of bumbling but murderous at the same time. Yeah, and uh, and the main the main bad guy uh, sort
4: of does force lightning to his crotch. Yes, <laughs> he played Santa Claus in 1984's Trancers. Uh, I don't think it was the real Santa Claus, just a Santa Claus. And mm-hmm. he also played Lloyd in Terminator 2. Now, if you don't remember Lloyd, uh, Lloyd is the character who pulls a shotgun on uh, the T-800, and the T-800 steals his shotgun.
0: Right, so Arnold Schwarzenegger spends the rest of Terminator 2 wearing Peter Shrum sunglasses and carrying his shotgun. Who wore it best? I don't know.
4: Some say Lloyd. I don't
0: know. But uh, but but who, who does he work for in this movie? Uh, Ray the Henchman works oh, yes. for the— the big bad of Eliminators, Abbott
4: Reeves, played by Roy Detrice. Oh, yes. How can I skip Roy Detrice? Um, yeah, Roy Detrice is great in this. Uh, he lived 1923 through 2017. Quite a legendary voice. Game of Thrones uh, audiobook fans will recognize him as their beloved narrator. And the uh, I think he had like a Guinness Book of World Records record for like the number of characters voiced uh, distinctive voices in a given audiobook performance
0: oh that's interesting yeah I, I have listened to some of those audiobooks, by the way and he does a good job though uh, occasionally I re- I don't know if this has been corrected in subsequent editions or anything but in the ones I listened to some errors got through I remember there was at least there were at least a couple points where he referred to Joffrey as Jeffrey and it was just in there <laughs>
4: Now um, his uh, George R. R. Martin connections uh, seem to go back to Beauty and the Beast, the TV series. This is the one with Ron Perlman uh, in it. Uh, hmm. On that, he played the character Jacob, Father Wells. And I think at one point he even like wrote an episode of the show. So he must have he must have gotten all, gotten along quite well uh, with George R. R. Martin. His last role was playing the Pyromancer uh, character on the Game of Thrones TV series. Small part, but memorable. Right. Now he was also in a wide array of projects throughout his long career. Uh, this is uh, always a fun one. He dubbed Harvey Keitel's voice in Saturn Three, which is mm. uh, uh, came out in 1980. It's very much uh, what I think uh, Kirk Douglas is in that one, and uh, basically it's an evil scientist character. And uh, uh, the story has has always been that uh, the director decided he didn't like Harvey Keitel's voice, like he sounded too you know New York. Uh, in the picture, to be a mad scientist, and depending on who's telling the story, either they just decided to dub him over, or they wanted Kaitel to come back in and do his own dubbing, but he wasn't available. Not sure how it went down, but we end up with uh, with Roy's voice and uh, Harvey's appearance. Uh, he is also no- notably uh, uh, in 1984's Amadeus. He played Leopold Mozart in that.
0: Oh, Mozart's dad, very yeah. imperious and and threatening even after his death.
4: Yeah. At any rate, makes for a great British goateed villain, which he he certainly is to a T in this picture.
0: Oh, oh, oh! But lest we forget, my favorite character in the
4: film, we <laughs> cannot we cannot leave out Bayou Betty. Yes, um, Bayou Betty is a character that, like when she first shows up, it's just oh, we'll we'll get to it. She's <laughs> she's tremendous. You just don't expect this to be a, a major character in the film, and then she comes back, and and you're delighted to have more, uh, played by uh, Peggy Mannix. Born in 1949, a spirited perf- uh, performance from a longtime TV bit player. She also uh, has done a lot of theater work and I think has been very much involved in like storytelling uh, uh-huh. sort of ventures. Um, I think this might be her most notable acting role, though. I mean, she's popped up as a bit player in a number of things. Like I think she, sh- she shows up on Seinfeld at some point.
0: Bayou Betty's the heart and soul of this movie. It's just, <laughs> just a-, a ray of sunlight. Um <laughs> Another thing I caught, though, when it, I didn't notice it until the uh, final credits were rolling when the movie was over, but uh, Rachel actually called it out. She pointed. She said, hey, look, John Carl Beakler And sure enough, special effects makeup in Eliminators by John Carl Beekler. I think he also did some effects for Arena, unless I'm remembering that wrong. And uh, this is a guy who did a whole bunch of uh, uh, special effects for movies of this type throughout the 80s. But he also directed some movies of his own, including the original Troll and Friday the 13th Part 7, the one with the psychic powers.
4: Good catch. Good catch there, Rachel. Um. Uh, I generally mention the, the music on this. The music's nothing really to write home about in this picture. It's fine. It's, uh, it's you know, heroic and everything. Uh, but it comes to us from Bob Summers, who also did scores for The Boogans, uh, The Annihilators, and uh, worked in the music department on scores for such films as Sideways, Night of the Comet, and Metal Storm. Destruction of Jared Sin? Yeah, The One and Only. Which is similar scores, I think. You know, very heroic, but also kind of generic. I'm not gonna lie. I thought the music in this one was was
0: pretty weak. <laughs> it was a lot of uh, kind of kind of plinking one note MIDI versions of uh, of like I don't know the the 2001 A Space Odyssey theme and and stuff like that.
4: Yeah. So sometimes I may say, "Hey, this score deserves a special edition vinyl release." This this score does not deserve a special edition vinyl release. Special edition MIDI, maybe maybe one of those junior size cassettes but not the full size cassette. Okay, you want to get into
0: the plot. Let's do it. First thing I noticed in this movie shows you the title right out right at the top. I don't know if this is the version I was looking at or what, but why is the title so dim? It's like they were showing the movie in energy saver mode.
4: Yeah, I I had the same experience during the early stages of this this movie. I I was actually wondering, is this is this in energy saver mode? Did I buy a bad television? Uh, yeah, <laughs> what's something what's wrong going with my here? TV? <laughs> yeah, it's it's very grimy and uh, and dark at the beginning. Luckily, it's not going to take us too long to be in a boat, out in broad daylight, where we'll spend yeah. most of the picture. But yeah, the, the early stages of this are a little grimy.
0: So while the credits roll, we get some background imagery and some scenes going on. We see a Terminator face, just a straight-up ripoff of Terminator with the red mm-hmm. eye, uh, surrounded by fire, and then we see a fighter pilot, like in one of those little, uh, oh, I don't know, what do you call it? The bubble top uh, uh, pilot's uh, seat. Uh, and he's screaming, mayday, mayday, I'm going down. And then we see <laughs> some ancient Roman soldiers and, with yeah. their, their spears and wearing the little leather skirts. And they're fighting a battle against some enemy equipped with lasers.
4: Yeah, so it's already just
0: confusing as all get out. What, what is happening? Right. What could this all mean? Well, we're about to find out. Uh, so the credits montage dissolves into some kind of darkened laboratory with electricity arcing all over the place. This is the zap room. And we meet two scientists. We've got we've got Dr. Takata, played by Tadashi uh, Horino, who is a kind-hearted elder scientist who's apparently elated at the success of whatever experiment they just pulled off. And then on the other hand, you've got Roy Detrice playing Dr. Abbott Reeves, a sadistic mad scientist with Rutger Hauer hair. Uh, Also, half of his face is kind of melted. And just from moment one, he is like gentleman to evil.
4: You know, I think nothing... It illustrates how rushed this movie feels more than having a mad scientist character named Abbott Reeves. Like, what? That's the best you could come up with. There's so many, you know, sardonic names you could devise, but you go with with Reeves, which of course brings to mind like Steve Reeves and Superman and so forth. Mm. It just doesn't sound evil enough. I agree, but 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 Roy Detrice
0: is going for that evil flavor with gusto. Yes. Uh, Rachel and I were talking about it, and we figured out that he's he's playing this role basically half as Donald Pleasance and half as Rutger Hauer.
4: Okay. Well, that's It's a, a good mix if one can achieve it. But on the
0: other hand, you've got Dr. Takata, who is he's like a good guy, but for some reason he has just taken a job at the Institute for Twisted Cruelty Studies on, under Dr. Satan here, and I don't know why. <laughs> But uh, putting that aside for the moment, so what happens in the scene? Well, Takata's like, the experiment worked. And uh, Reeves says, only if he brought proof. So Takata's trying to celebrate, but uh, Reeves is just trying to, he's just ordering him around. He's like, help the mandroid from the cage at once. <laughs> so they open up some kind of chamber and out pops our mandroid for the film. Uh, how to describe what this guy looks like? He's—he's he's, Half of his head is, like, uh, is a
4: Terminator head. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Half a Terminator head, uh, red eye glaring. The rest of his body is kind of, you know, hodgepodge of um, of armor, like sort of power armory looking stuff. That I guess is supposed to imply that he's he's actually a robot underneath all that stuff.
0: I think so. His left arm is like a Mega Man arm. It's like gun for mm-hmm. an arm. The mandroid he comes up to Reeves. He hands over a plastic prop shield. And Roy Trice is all, hmm, yes, first century centurion shield, no less. Magnificent. Uh, and <laughs> and le- uh, I would have thought, okay, how would he know this? Why does this mad scientist know things about ancient Rome? And he's able to identify artifacts. But I think this actually does make sense
4: because he's apparently obsessed with ancient Rome. Yeah, we find out much later in the film that he is a connoisseur of, the, of these items. I don't know why he is. He just is. Oh, well, you know, he's kind of a you know a megalomaniac, clearly, and he he likes the he likes the shine of uh, the, of the the Roman Imperial period, and uh, you know that's why he at some point decides I want to use time travel technology to go back in time and conquer ancient Rome and become their ruler. Yeah, w- what's the big deal? I'm just a Caligula enthusiast.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, but it was, yeah, I guess we're kind of burying the lead now. So the weird thing is. Did you also get the feeling that the movie is maybe trying to be a little bit coy about what the deal with the experiment was, like building up to a reveal later on? But it doesn't work because, like, obviously it was time travel and they sent the mandroid back to, like, shoot Roman soldiers and steal one of their shields.
4: Yeah, yeah. It it feels like that might have been the case. Like, they're trying to to leave you guessing, but we we all know. We all know it's time travel. (laughs)
0: Wow, what was the experiment? How did he get this shield?
4: Why are there cavemen running around, scenes of Roman soldiers? I mean, it's it's time travel. What else could it be? You're running a Westworld park? I mean, that's the only other possible explanation. Meanwhile, Dr.
0: Takata, he's over here showing his sensitive side because Roy Detreese is doing his megalomaniac thing. But Takata, uh, he's like he wants to know how the Mandroid feels. And the Mandroid says he can barely remember, except he, he knows on his journey he saw flashes of memories. He says, I was in my plane going down again. So our Mandroid is haunted by horrible memories of a plane crash that are, are rippling through his Borg brain. And uh, and then Roy Datrice does something. I was trying to figure out. He like plugs himself into a tube of some kind. Is he supposed mm-hmm. to be on some kind of dialysis, or is he is he like part robot at this point and plugging himself in to recharge?
4: Well, he also has a, a, a like he has all these wounds on his face too, right? Like mm. he's he's using mad science to recoup from something, but I don't think we're ever quite. Uh, told what it was, right? He's just, he gets yeah. a little better each time we see him.
0: Takata wants to uh, send the mandroid off to heal and be repaired. You know, he tells him, you've done well, my friend, because he is a kindly scientist, uh, but then immediately Reeves is like, no, destroy it. Make it suffer. <laughs> and Takata uh, uh, is like, but, you know, his his brain is half human. It's, he's alive. You can't do that. But Reeves says, since when have we ever been concerned with compassion? What compassion was ever shown to me? And then you get a good, like, burned face yeah. reveal. He's kind of <laughs> dabbing at his his burns.
4: Now, the whole thing with the, the mandroid having these visions of being in a, like a World War II plane crash, uh that means they bone jacked him, right? Like they, I guess these, so. these guys are bonejackers. Yes, yes. They got the meat. But the meat was damaged, thus then I guess the meat was damaged. That's why you make a, a manborg, right? A man droid. You or did they just decide, no, we need a we only need to use part of the meat and create the man droid. We need a man droid for our various time travel uh uh thefts. Well apparently they don't need him that long because
0: Reeves, uh, Roy Detrice is like, no, destroy him. So uh, Takata's like, okay, well, I'm he, I'm gonna have to set the mandroid free. So he, you know, he conspires with him. He says, "We will escape this place tonight." And the mandroid says, "I'll need my mobile unit." And ah, uh, the mobile unit. I love the mobile unit. How to describe the mobile unit, Rob? When I say mobile unit, what words come to your mind?
4: Oh, um, well, now it is clearly going to be a, a, a like a tank centaur situation. You know, it is this. Um, Uh, I don't know what the words would have uh, brought to mind previously, but I knew where we were going because I'd seen the poster. Uh, The mobile unit is one of these effects that really, this is fabulously done. This looks amazing. It looks great. Uh, At the same time, (laughs) the rest of the picture is cheap enough to where like this effect looks a little hokey, even though the effect itself, I think, looks, looks extremely solid
0: it looks very good but it also looks really unintentionally funny yeah and the reason I would put it there is they came up with a a really quite good special effect but they filmed it in such a way and edited it in such a way that like you see it moving in awkward ways like he so it's a guy on tank treads like he's a tank centaur he takes his legs off and plugs his torso into this tank thing but then when you actually see him moving around on it it looks like he it would be more efficient for him to just use his legs because he's yeah. he like gets stuck rolling around on stuff and then tries to do a three-point turn and it's really funny
4: yeah yeah it's i mean it, it's kind of like when a, a child is like no i want to take my scooter and the parent is like oh god this is going to take even longer uh it would it would be easier if you walked uh but but yeah it also comes back to the the basic premise we've discussed before like no matter how good your monster costume is or in this case your your uh your your half tank cyborg centaur costume happens to be if you just shoot it in broad daylight (laughs) you're not doing it any favors Agreed. But anyway, they get caught while they're trying to escape. And uh,
0: unfortunately, uh, the the kindly Dr. Takata is killed in their escape attempt. But before he dies, he tells the Mandroid that he must go and find a scientist named Colonel Hunter. And if he finds Colonel Hunter, he can he can have all the answers. So then there's a big escape sequence where he's rolling around on his tracks and he's trying to get out of the compound and then we meet. Uh, here we get our first meeting with Ray, the henchman. Who, when when Rachel and I first saw him, we were like, "Oh, it's Crenshaw from Boggy <laughs> Creek," because he's got he's got a big red beard, uh, mm-hmm. and he's dressed kind of like a like a Bayou guy, but not quite in like just the shirtless with overalls like Crenshaw. But he's halfway there, and he uh, and he's on sniper duty. He's trying to like shoot the mandroid with this big weird gun that has these three red scopes on it.
4: Yeah, like the the gun looks like it's some sort of futuristic device. You know, it's it's a it's very much like a sci-fi sniper rifle, but there's nothing else about Ray that uh that suggests science fiction. Like he's just this bearded dude, uh you know, might be just a trucker that was making a shipment uh to the mad science lab and was hired on the spot. Ray looks like a guy who would own a food truck called Wild <laughs> Bubba's Boudin Balls. Yep, yep. Uh, very much so. And, and, you know, looking at him, you know that he owns a boat. Today's episode is brought
0: to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right.
2: And conquer it in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562 314 4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: Well, anyway, the mandroid escapes. He parks his mobile unit somewhere in the jungle, puts his leg units on. Which is great. This walks. is
4: a great sequence. Like, it's, a, yes. it's again, they just really thought out this mobile unit thing.
0: Yes, uh, and then he he walks out of the jungle, and then next thing we're just immediately into some place that looks like a modern art museum. This is where mm-hmm. we meet Denise Crosby, and she's there doing science. The, again, this is Colonel Hunter, Co- Colonel Nora Hunter, and she's doing tests
4: on a robot prototype that she has developed called Spot. Yeah, and Spot is uh um n- not as great an effect. I mean, he's just a little robot. It's it's neat. It's not you know it's not the worst robot effect I've seen, but he, he looks a little hokey. And later on in the picture, especially when he's flying around, it, it just looks real bad. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, SPOT is an acronym. It stands for Search, Patrol, and Operational Tactician. Mm-hmm. And I think what they're going for is because they've got a mandroid, they've got like a, a gritty, uh, you know, a gritty assassin bot that shoots torpedoes and lasers and stuff. They wanted to also have a cute robot in the
4: vein of like you know, Short Circuit or R2 D2 right uh but but this guy's not cute i mean this is <laughs> it's very forced much like the name of the uh, uh the creature and it's uh, it's just their little um, uh reconnaissance robot
0: but she's doing tests with spot and then meanwhile mandroid infiltrates the perimeter apparently he's in disguise I'm I'm saying that with scare quotes here because his disguise is he's still a mandroid but he's wearing like an alligator skin fedora and a rain poncho
4: yes yeah he looks very uh very sus as the kids say kind of phantom of the opera esque. rather
0: hilarious actually in fact it's even funnier when he takes the stuff off to reveal him. So he, you know, he meets Denise Crosby and he's like, hello. And she's like, who are you? And he, uh, this is after he has, by the way, knocked out some security guards by spraying green gas in their face.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but then he, he comes up and she's like, Oh, who are you? What's going on? And then he removes his fedora and his poncho to clearly this is supposed to be like a gasp Borg reveal, but we've already seen him. So we know what he looks yeah. like. She's acting very surprised, but, Are we supposed to believe that people don't notice that half of his face is a Terminator as long as he's wearing the hat? (laughs) Like later in the movie, he hides the Terminator half under bandages, but he's not Mm -hmm. doing that here.
4: He's just, this is a half Terminator, but he's wearing a hat. Well, I guess we're just supposed to imagine that his head was at just the right angle throughout all of this. So we could see the Terminator stuff, but she could not.
0: Well, so he explains the backstory that we've already seen. He he talks about his uh you know, what happened before he was borged. He he remembers crashing a plane and he says his body was taken up river, and then he says, uh when I woke up I saw this, I think referring to his droid body. And uh and she and she starts looking at the technology that he has been outfitted with and she says, Your arms, your leg units, it's my <laughs> work, all of it. So we find out that the mandroid is actually based on technology that was originally intended for peaceful uses in space exploration, and uh, so so Doctor Reeves is not only an evil mad scientist; he's also a thief who has been stealing the intellectual property of Denise Crosby to make unholy mandroids in the jungle.
4: Yeah, I mean, once he goes back in time to uh, what uh, is it uh, first century uh, uh, C.E. Or, or or B.C.E.? I'm not. I don't I guess remember so. offhand. Like, once he goes back, uh, clearly he has all the copyrights, all the trademarks.
0: Oh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that.
4: I mean, he's probably just bringing stuff back with him just to – just like, he's bringing super soakers, and he's just like, nope, I invented it, clearly. <laughs> oh, but here we
0: also find out the Dr. Reeves is, like, borging himself as well, because Denise Crosby mm-hmm. says, uh, but Reeves died five years ago, and the mandroid says, no, he prolonged his life through grafting and
4: transplants. Mm, All right. So that explains what's going on and what what we continue to see going on with uh, Dr. Reeves. But then I liked how –
0: so she's like, well, what's going on with your head? So he just sits down and she starts – she opens up his head and starts working on it, like soldering his brain chips while he's Mm -hmm. sitting there awake. And he's like, ah! And he he hallucinates some Roman centurions – And, uh, and then they eventually agree that they've got to team up. They've got to form a a turbo team to go on a mission to the jungle, to stop Abbott Reeves from doing whatever he's doing. So this is the first hint of the team. The turbo team begins, begins with two. Yep. Team partially assembled. But before we get to the jungle, I thought one, there was a really funny scene where they're driving in a car in whatever city Denise Crosby was working in, uh, and there is a carjacking attempt where a guy like busts out the window and tries to steal her robot spot mm-hmm. um and before oh before he busts out the window he's like hey you need some body work and uh the the of course uh mandroid is very confused by this he's like are you talking to me and she's like no he's talking about the car then the guy breaks the window tries to grab her robot And then the mandroid gets out of the car and, like, shoots torpedoes at these random carjackers. And he delivers the first of this movie's several absolute clunker comebacks. He goes, (laughs) you're
4: the one who will need body work. (laughs) Well, he has has a damaged processor at this point. That's been established. He can't be expected to really come up with any zingers on the spot.
0: His zinger circuits are badly in need of repair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so anyway, I think they go down to Mexico where they're supposed to be finding a way to uh, to take a boat up the river to find Abbott Reeves. So they're going to need a boat and a guide. And this is where we get to our cantina scene, a tremendous scene, a real milestone in the movie. Um, how to even begin here? I mean, so this is where we meet our – I was going to say bounty hunter, but he's not a bounty hunter. Our Our mercenary, our guide, our river rat, mm-hmm. one of our new turbo team members – this guy is Harry Fontana. This is, uh, is what's his name, Andrew Prine?
4: Yes. Mm-hmm. He's
0: a slimeball river rat with long hair and a five o'clock shadow. And it's a real kind of Tim Thomerson sort of role.
4: Yeah, in fact, it's funny that you say that. It's my understanding that Tim Thomerson was was originally offered the role. Like, he was originally who they wanted in this role. But uh, for some reason, that didn't work out. Enter, enter um, uh, Prine. And, you know, I have to say, I think Thomerson would have been Too likable in the role. I think, (laughs) I think Thomerson has, is just uh, his his charisma is a little, a little more wholesome somehow. And uh, I like that we have a, a a more proper river rat on our hands here.
0: But also, but he's not the only thing in the scene. The scene also has Mm -hmm. this weird bartender who had, what was going on with that guy's accent? It was, so he, you would expect him to have, I guess, a Mexican accent. This
4: is in Mexico. But he sort of halfway has a Scottish accent. The one thing this vaguely made me think of is the uh, the old black and white film, uh, uh, Wages of Fear, which I think, if memory serves, revolves around like a bunch of expats. You know, they're kind of stuck somewhere in South America, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, they're trying to sort of scheme their way out. Uh, like, So maybe there's a, a certain, certain uh, a dash of that flavor added to this picture. I'm not sure.
0: Hmm. Uh,
4: But then, of course,
0: enter my favorite character, Bayou Betty, who saunters into the bar surrounded by a gang of obsequious, cowardly Frenchmen. And uh, Bayou Betty is apparently a rival river rat. So you got Harry Fontana, your main river rat. And then Bayou Betty, she is a different riverboat guide who is not happy that Fontana is stealing her business. She accuses him of undercutting uh, I'm not sure exactly what she thinks the problem is, but maybe it's that, pe- you know, people are paying to ride in his boat instead of paying to ride in her boat because he charges less money.
4: Yeah, I think that's that's the case. Uh, at any rate, she she has it in for him. And Bayou Betty, I have to say, Bayou Betty feels kind of like, uh, like a like an Amy Sedaris character. Like it, like this could be an Amy, <laughs> Amy Sedaris character. Uh, that's the the best way I can describe it. Bayou Betty is a.
0: Yeah, she's a she's a tough violent Cajun woman <laughs> who enjoys threatening and punching people mm-hmm. and uh there's there are a number of things that make me think the the makers of this movie believed that Louisiana is located within uh, like the the forested part of southern Mexico because it has Cajun river guides and then Ray the Crenshaw henchman he's plausibly a Louisiana guy too He like he's got a very a crawdad kind of energy so I don't
4: know what's going on but where we go to next is just, is great like it feels like something out of a Popeye cartoon because Denise yes, Crosby has yes. entered she needs to hire a riverboat guide. And so how are you going to determine this? Are you going to look at uh, resumes? No. No, she just comes in and says,
0: "Hey, I need the toughest guide to this river." And I guess Bayou Betty, you know, she's 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 all about action. She she puts her money where her mouth is. She hauls off and slugs her own French henchman in the jaw, <laughs> and then just a big fight immediately breaks out. Everybody in the cantina starts punching each other. People are slamming glass bottles and smashing each other over tables. Why I I don't know, but it's great.
4: But not Harry Fontana. Now he he ducks behind the bar, helps himself to a little free alcohol, and waits till uh everybody has kind of uh, uh fought themselves into a stupor, uh, and then uh smashes a bottle on the back of Bayou Betty's head. Now he's the clear winner. He claims the business, right. He outskunked them all. He
0: proved his worth worthiness by being a coward and a thief. Yes. <laughs> Uh, And then from here, uh, for the next approximately 36 hours, (laughs) this
4: movie becomes the saga of boat. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, there's there's boats chasing each other, running for each other. People falling out of boats, people climbing into boats, stuff exploding next to boats, boats exploding. Uh, Just any variation on the theme you might be looking for, Eliminators has it.
0: And then you think the boat chase is over and then the next scene is like the characters start talking and then a new boat chase starts. But that's kind of great because so after the cantina scene, I was like, "Oh my god, I love Bayou Betty!" I was so afraid she would just vanish from the movie here, and that would be all the Bayou Betty we get. But middle stretch of the movie is mostly like, uh, so it's Harry Fontana, the River Rat, trying to figure out what it is that uh, that that the bandroid and Denise Crosby are after. You know, he's like, "Do you want gold? Do you want diamonds? What are you doing here?" And then meanwhile, Bayou Betty is chasing them in a fleet of boats with armed henchmen, all okay. apparently so she can have their fare. Yeah. Like she's hunting them down with all these weapons so, sh- so that she can convince them to ride in her boat instead of his.
4: Yeah, I mean, she must be... She must be working up to wanting a cut of the treasure, because that's ultimately what uh, Fontana is all about too. He's like he thinks this is yeah. about gold, this is about you know something from some other uh, jungle adventure movie, some sort of like ancient treasure situation, and he wants a cut of it. That's uh, that's where he's going to really excel. But of course, they're all wrong. This there is no gold. This is a this is a mission of elimination, uh, not uh, not tr- not treasure hunting.
0: Right, but along the way we get lots of boat stunts and boat chases. Uh, oh, and then I thought it was part of the scene is Harry Fontana learning valuable lessons about overcoming sexist attitudes because <laughs> at one point d- they're they're trying to fight off uh, Bayou Betty's henchmen, and uh, he, somebody needs to drive the boat, and Denise Crosby's like, I can drive the boat, and he's like, You can't drive it. You're a woman. So he, <laughs> um, but then the mandroid like shames him into relenting. The mandroid. literally yells at him that's wrong (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and then uh, the same pattern is repeated with fixing the boat's engine Uh, Mm -hmm. he he doesn't know what he's doing but Denise Crosby comes in she can fix it which she does by grabbing out of his hand what looks like a bottle of white wine I think it's supposed to be liquor but it's like yellow colored and then she pours it into the engine somewhere
4: yeah and yeah somehow fixes it with what seems to be uh, to be alchemy or something I don't know yeah. but, she, but she fixes it if it, it starts again like nobody has ever said to me oh are you having trouble getting your car to start have you tried pouring just alcohol on the motor that that <laughs> seems to work it works in this one film I saw there is one part where I didn't understand what was
0: happening but it's like the, they are driving and Fontana keeps wildly like causing the boat to veer back and forth instead of driving it in a straight line. Mm -hmm. And they're like, ease up. And then he goes, this is what you hired me for. And I don't know what that means or why any of it's happening. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, there are a bunch more boat chases. Eventually, uh, the mandroid has to intervene to get them to escape Bayou Betty's uh, goons by shooting a torpedo at Betty's Mm -hmm. boat. And then, of course, Fontana's like, whoa, wait a minute. I saw you shoot a torpedo out of your arm. And then he gets the mandroid reveal. Like, he takes off his poncho. And -hmm. it's, he's a mandroid. Um, And then there are more boat chases, this time with Ray, you know, our Crenshaw guy. Mm -hmm. And... Basically, for the rest of the movie, they're just on the mission with various little vignettes and boat things happening. Uh, so maybe we could just uh, go a little bit less scene by scene here and describe some of the standout vignettes from the mission. I'd say one of the big ones, of course, is meeting our final member of the turbo team, Kuji, the ninja.
4: Yes, who is um, – is he supposed to be the son of the good scientist from earlier?
0: Yes, or, he is the okay.
4: son of Dr. Takata. Right, and so he's he's – He's uh, on, on location here, uh, I, I guess, for vengeance. This is a, a vengeance mission for him. And do they, do they explicitly say he's a ninja? Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, it, Kung Fu is alluded to by Fontana, but, um, uh, I mean, it's it's clear that Kuji uh, is very good with weapons and fighting. There's a big, uh, big fight scene that takes place. Oh, yeah, he's got it on lock, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Rob, what did you make? Of, there was one part where, uh, where I was like, "What is going on?" But th- it was when the Turbo team is captured by the cavemen from the Geico commercials. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and this is this is the part where Denise Cros- they get captured, and Denise Crosby's like, "They look like Neanderthals," um, but of course, we we figure out that they are they are here for some reason because they have been brought here through time travel experiments.
4: Yeah, that's that's really all i had to go on like he must have retrieved some neanderthals and just like let them go or they escaped and now they're living wild or maybe he he was like well i'll just introduce them into the area and they'll sort of serve as a buffer between me and any you know people that show up to mess with my science i don't know um but they're there and uh and the makeup effects though i'm not sure how accurate they they truly are regarding neanderthals it's pretty good basic cave, you know, pretty good uh, caveman makeup. They they look pretty good. Though they're they're played more for uh, comic relief, I think, than uh, serious threat. Well, anyway, a bunch of other stuff
0: happens. We we find out some things about Mandroid's past. He uh, at one point, Denise Crosby like dives into a crashed plane to retrieve a family photo. I think this was the plane that the man who Mandroid was before he was droided. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, th- this is the plane he flew, and his family photo is in there. And so, uh, so, some more things happen, but eventually we get down to the final confrontation with Abbott Reeves, with Roy Detrice, who is now a full on cyborg himself and nearly invincible. They, you know, they shoot stuff at him and he just easily deflects it. It's, it seems like he's unbeatable. How will they ever defeat him?
4: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's fully powered. He's blasting everything. He has a, a what is the What does he refer to his special weapon as? It, um, is an ion destroyer or an ion reverser? Um, oh,
0: there's the the thing where he says it'll turn the atoms in your body inside out. I like yes. that.
4: So of course we see it do nothing of the sort. <laughs> he right. just kind of this the, the 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 cyborg gets blasted with it a few times, and you know it's just sort of typical robot gets hit with a laser gun sort of affair. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm not really believing him all that much on the the claims regarding this weapon. Right. But our, our heroes fight through his henchmen.
0: But then, uh, of course, uh, Abbott Reeves in the end escapes into his time machine. And we find out his plan is to travel back in time to ancient Rome and crown himself the cyborg Caesar. Mm-hmm. So ha- can our heroes save history from being Borgified? Well, at first, it looks like no, because he already gets into the time <laughs> machine and he leaves and they're like, he's gone. We can't stop him. But oh, oh wow. Oh, wow. This ending
4: Yeah. uh, Fontana basically saves the day, right? Because they're like, look, it's too late. He's already gone back. And they they see the date there on the time machine controls. And Fontana Mm -hmm. just starts like hitting the machine, uh, essentially vandalizing the machine. And Uh then something happens. Well, you can say what it is. Well, do we want to spoil this terrific? In- yes, we do. Uh, so basically, it. Uh, it, instead of going back to uh, you know first century uh, 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 C.E. or B.C.E. I forget which, it instead takes him way back, uh, like like all uh, pretty much all the way back. Uh, you know, not not uh, you know primordial ooze level, but to uh, the Silurian um uh, time period so it, it sent him all the way back to to a time when there is nothing to conquer nothing to 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 overpower um and uh and we we get this wonderful scene where he uh, we see the time machine is crashed in this primordial landscape uh he gets out of it and then he's like no because he quickly <laughs> realizes that he has gone far too back in time there's no way back and now he's the king of nothing it's a pretty killer ending
0: I, yeah. did, I should have looked into this before we started recording I don't know if there would have been breathable atmosphere at the time
4: well he's, uh, he's all
0: cyborged up, up. up at this point
4: right so. oh okay so he can he'll he'll be fine in a co2 atmosphere maybe I don't know he <laughs> <laughs> who are we to doubt the scene, the scene that we we witness here I mean there would be some things to rule over right I mean mostly marine organisms <laughs> yeah yeah it's something I mean you know something about by, by day two he might have gotten over it and be like all right it's it's all right, Reeves. It's not too bad. We are uh you know the the, the, the Caesar of uh, of slimes where the a fish. We're the, yeah. the Caesar of fish. Uh so we have that going for us at least. That
0: would have been a great scene, actually. He goes to the water's edge and there are these weird fish creatures and he's
4: just like kneel before me. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good. So it's quite it's quite an ending. And it's one of these where like our heroes Saved the day essentially by vandalism and kind of through yes. technicality. Like uh, basically the villain won, but they, they found a loophole in his victory.
0: So I will say overall, this was not a very good movie, uh, but it was a, a goobery good time.
4: Yeah, it's, uh, this one's a lot of fun. It's real dumb, uh, <laughs> but in a, in a, in a wonderfully watchable sense. So, uh, I, I highly recommend it, um, now, we watched it as part of the uh, uh, the excellent Shout Factory Sci-Fi Movie Marathon DVD set, which also includes Arena uh, and two films that I have not seen, America 3000 and The Time Guardian. I haven't seen them either, so I, no comment. I think Carrie Fisher's in one of them. Uh, I think she's in The Time Guardian, but that's all I know about. Wow. It. Now, Shout Factory also put out Eliminators on Blu-ray in 2015, and 88 Films did a combo Blu-ray DVD uh, release in 2017. I'm not sure if Eliminators is streaming anywhere at the moment, as of this recording. But I think it has popped up on places like Prime in the past. So, you know, if you're if you're looking out on Tubi uh, or in places of that of that nature, you're bound to see it pop up eventually all right we're gonna go and close it out uh but of course we'd love to hear from anyone out there if we have any uh eliminators fans out there uh certainly if you saw this movie back in the 80s uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, if you want to check out other episodes of weird house cinema it comes out every friday in the stuff to blow your mind podcast feed we're primarily a science podcast but on fridays we put aside all that serious stuff and we just focus in on a weird motion picture
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to And one
4: more thing I have to say before I was really familiar with this film at all. I heard a sample from it on the track. "Sai ism off the Wax Factor album "Sai fu uh, now, this is an artist that now goes by the name of Pete Sasquax. That's S-A-S-Q-W-A-X. And he's put out a ton of great content over the years. Most of his work is currently on Bandcamp, and I think you can still access Saifu the album, on Apple Music, but he may be putting it out on Bandcamp in the future as well. Uh, for uh, all of his links, check out his link tree on his Instagram page. He is, uh, again, Pete uh, Sasquax. That's P-E-T-E-S-A-S-Q-W-A-X. I reached out to him and he gave us the go ahead to play part of Sai Ism here. Uh, it has a lot of great samples in it, including a, 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 just a, a real gem of a sample from Eliminators.
1: What
3: is, what is anyway, 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 Some kind of goddamn comic, comic book, comic book, comic book, comic book. We got robots, we got cavemen,
1: we got.
4: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com.
3: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99.